right outside of our gut is about 70% of our immune system. And there's one single layer of cells just separating ourselves from 70% of our immune system. And so when we feed our gut the things that it likes to eat, particularly um, the fiber and a diversity of fiber, um, it does its job and rewards us with short chain fatty acids, which help promote gut health and immune health and the strengthening of that lining. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio. And this is episode number 149. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Hey there, veggie lovers. Welcome back to Veggie Doctor Radio for another amazing episode, this time with Dr. Rebecca Winderman, who is a plant-based pediatric gastroenterologist in New York City. How cool is that? Before I tell you more about Dr. Winderman, please let me remind you that the information on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not meant to replace careful evaluation and treatment. So if you have concerns about your own or your child's eating nutrition or growth, please consult a healthcare professional. I'm so excited to bring you this episode. You probably have heard me say this before on the show, but anytime I find a plant-based pediatric GI doctor, I immediately ask them to come on the show because it's such a rare find and the topics that GI doctors cover are so important and so popular. Some of the most popular episodes on the podcast are the GI episodes. And this episode in particular, we're going to get a little bit more detailed about functional abdominal pain because it is something that I've been seeing more recently in my practice and something that we haven't really covered on the podcast. So definitely take a listen if you're interested in that. But we also talk about the gut microbiome, why Dr. Winderman switched herself to a plant-based diet, why she talks about eating more plants, why plants are so important for gut health but we really get into what is functional abdominal pain, how is it diagnosed, how do we treat it, what's the prognosis, what are some signs and symptoms that it's more than functional abdominal pain, something potentially more serious, and also things like what she wishes parents knew. So this is a great episode. I think you're really going to love it. Dr. Rebecca Winderman is a plant-based pediatric GI doctor in New York City. She is the kind of doctor who takes you off your meds and is microbiome obsessed. 
She's huge on kindness and empathy, and she's spreading the word on social media that health starts in the gut. And she loves making videos, so definitely follow her on TikTok and on Instagram. You'll see all of her fun, bright videos that will make you smile. And I know that you're going to love this episode, so please help me welcome Dr. Rebecca Winderman. Dr. Rebecca Winderman, thank you so much for joining me on Veggie Doctor Radio today. You're welcome. I'm excited to be here. Well, I discovered you on Instagram as, and as always happens when I find a pediatric gastroenterologist that is into plant-based nutrition, I automatically messaged you and probably scared the heck out of you, inviting you to be on my podcast because it's a very rare breed to find pediatric GI doctors who are familiar with plant-based. So thank you so much for coming on and I'm excited to get to know you more. Likewise. Yeah, I I have to agree with you. Um, Us plant-based docs in general are rare to come by. So um, I found you equally exciting when I heard from you as well. So I found you on Instagram as well. Well, thank you. (laughs) Yes. Well, tell us about your story. What is your plant-based journey? So it's so interesting. I always tell people, and I'm sure you know this too, we just don't get enough exposure to nutrition and education about healthy eating habits. We do an excellent job of taking care of sick, um, but I don't think that we learn it enough about you know how, how to maintain health. And that's the majority of what we hope to see as a doctor. So when I went into GI, um, my fellowship was, the title was Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition. Mm-hmm. And yet I didn't get that new, I mean, what I really got there was how to treat sick children, how to give nutrition to sick children. So children who are neurologically impaired, how to feed them with the tube or short bowel syndrome or how to treat, you know, patients who have liver disease, those sort of things. I knew how to treat their nutritional needs, but I never really understood um, nutrition from, from a layperson standpoint. And so I found myself on social media, finding all these people that were plant-based and vegan. And I had no idea what all these things were. And I started looking into it over the past like two, three years. And I found um, the book, How Not to Die. And then I found um, Dr. B's book on fiber field site. And then I found you and I just started digging into all this. And then I went to PubMed and I just like put out like microbiome and plant plants or whatever. And I think it came up with like an overwhelming number of studies that I like, you know, I thought there would be like here and there, like something, you know what I mean? That I'd have to like keep referencing this study like one or two times when I convince people, but like just the amount of literature that was out there, it was so hard to ignore at that point that I just decided this is how I, I need to be eating. And this is how I need to be teaching my patients and my families to be eating. So here I am. Wow. Yeah, that is so amazing. And I love how you took the doctor approach and you went to look for some evidence-based medicine stuff like, okay, what's, what's there. And then you get bombarded with all this and you're like, wait, how do I not know this? And I'm a GI doctor, you know, I mean, come on, isn't that insane? Yes. And it, it is, it's like so ironic because you would think gastroenterology Obviously, it deals with nutrients and getting nutrients, but in some ways, GI is like very 
abnormal, Pit, right? Because you're feeding like people in these abnormal yeah. ways. Sometimes you're yeah. feeding them just through their vein. Like, you know, Correct. like you're doing nutrients straight into yes. the vein. And so you have to yes. know like super detailed about some nutrients and controlling this and that. So you're doing all this super right. unusual, abnormal feeding methods. But then when it comes to just like your typical growing child development stuff, you probably have like a deficit there sometimes, huh? Yes. Yes. Uh, like beyond a deficit. I, you know, we're seeing more and more kids who are obese and having, you know, what we call fatty liver disease where fat deposits in the liver. And that's strictly due to a weight issue. And I'm finding my, I was finding myself referring to nutrition all the time and sending these referrals and they would see them like three months down the line. And I just sat there and I said, like, how can I counsel these patients on how to eat healthy and what to do, you know, to, to help them to lose the weight if I myself really had no idea. And so I went on this like mm -hmm. journey of just learning about the foods that are good for our gut and what that would look like um, in a disease state even. And I started to explore that as medicine as well. Um, and I found that there's an overwhelming amount of evidence for, you know, I mean, look, celiac is a disease that we treat with food, right? Like we restrict, mm -hmm. we can we can cure celiac by not eating gluten. So, you know, I, I knew there was endless possibilities and particularly with IBD, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, there's an overwhelming amount of evidence, more so for Crohn's, about using nutrition as as treatment. So I just, I, I knew yeah. this was something that I that I owed to myself and to my patients as well, yeah. Well, tell me about how it affected you personally. Did you have any cognitive dissonance? Did you then kind of evaluate your diet? Was it difficult? How has it made changes in your life? So I think, you know, to be honest, that first change of like, oh gosh, like here I go, I'm going to be that like flowy skirt and Birkenstock crunchy granola girl that like <laughs> I always rolled my eyes at in the clinic and was like, sure, you can try that, ma'am. But like, you know, you're going to have to listen to like my real like medicine, you know? And I just, and so I went through like that in my head of like, okay, um, it's not that it's like evidence-based. And, and I also had to sort of undo some of my preconceived notions of like vegan versus plant-based. And I didn't understand mm -hmm. that difference until recently. And I always explain to my patients like Twizzlers are vegan, right? But like plant-based, that's not plant-based. So like just mm -hmm. taking apart that and like digesting that for myself helped me to understand like, you know, where I was going to go with this. And then I started to see like wild transformation in like my attention span, my mood, um, this COVID, you know, pandemic, look, I'm not going to say I stayed any healthier than anyone else because of the things I did, but I was on the front line and I was, you know, before there was PPE and I felt stronger, healthier. Um, you know, my mood really changed. I lost, you know, any extra weight that I was carrying around and not that I was carrying around so much, but I was thin to begin with, but now I'm, thin with energy and with like passion and I'm awake and alert and I have more of a mood boost every day because of it and I feel it so I, I'm like happy to give it over to my patients 
Wow, that's so cool. I also experienced a stabilization of my mood. I, I see that you're probably already baseline a high energy person compared yes. to, I'm like that too, but I would have these like peaks and valleys, you know, where yes. I can go super high, but then I have these super, super lows. And yes. I felt that when I transitioned to a plant-based diet, it was it just seemed more even keel. Like I just seemed calmer yes. overall. I could still be energetic and still accomplish a lot, but it just didn't feel like that up and down sort of thing, you know? Yes. When it does feel down, I can identify immediately like, oh, that was a day. And I tell my patients too, I'm like, it's not all kale and like big green bowls. Like sometimes I mess up as well and I eat cookies, you know? So like, and I know that's bad and I try to avoid it, but like, I see those days that I I, I don't have a diversity in plants or I haven't eaten fresh food. Um, and I, and I feel those days and I can identify them now. It's not, and my stomach feels, you know, I used to have stomach issues, IBS, and I'm, I'm, I can, I clearly identify the days that I ate well or didn't eat well and correlate them to how I was feeling. And now I have less and less of those because I've just, it's just so obvious. I love it. Well, has there been a part that's been hard for you? Like, is there anything that has been hard to transition to or give up? So I would say um, fish was difficult for me to give up because I just couldn't find um, that much information on how fish or lean protein is is not okay, you know, or is, is harmful to your microbiome. But when I switched my mindset over to, well, without it, I will have to diversify my plants more to get, you know, the protein and to, you know, and I'll get that added plant as well. Then I started to shift that, that mindset. And that felt better for me because it wasn't a restriction. Look, you can have fish, Rebecca, if you want it. And, Mm -hmm. but to me, it was like, I'm I'm in this constant state of like competition between like my daughter and I, we have like charts going around in the house, like who could eat the most amount of plants in a week. So like, you know, for, for us, it's like, we are, we're very serious (laughs) about it. So that that became easier at that point once I shifted my mindset. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I love that positive mindset shift. And that's how I talk to my patients and students too, is like, let's focus on what you can put in. And yes. you're exactly right. That diversity is key. That's the key word, diversity. Yes. Well, tell me a little bit more. You touched on the gut microbiome, but why are plants so powerful when it comes to gut health? So, I mean... It- to be more specific in terms of your, it really is about your gut microbiome. It's the fuel that your, your, you know, microbes in your gut prefer to eat. You know, we're all picky eaters, I would say, each and every one of us. My child likes to eat something different than yours, and I like to eat something different than you do. And so our gut microbiome's the same way. So, you know, whereas we used to think, you know, hey, wake up, have a bowl of oatmeal every single morning. That'll be good. That'll be your fiber check. Next, move on to your protein. And, you know, so now we know that that's not, that's not necessarily the case. And in fact, it's the opposite of that. We need a diversity so that each of our microbes can feast on the things that they want to feast on. And so they reward us when we feed them with the fiber. They reward us by breaking down that fiber and making short chain fatty acids. And that strengthens what we call tight junctions. So there's a lining in our gut that keeps our gut, the things inside of our gut safe from 
the things outside of our gut or our body. So and out, right outside of our gut is about 70% of our immune system. And there's one single layer of cells just separating ourselves from 70% of our immune system. And so when we feed our gut the things that it likes to eat, particularly um, the fiber and a diversity of fiber, um, it does its job and rewards us with short-chain fatty acids, which help promote gut um health and immune health and the strengthening of that lining and you know when we when we give it certain kinds only you know of fiber then other parts of our, our gut microbiome aren't getting fed they're starving right so the key mm-hmm. is to really feed all of the good bacteria and and starve out the bad bacteria and and the bad bacteria eat processed foods refined sugars that's easier for them to 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 you know, feast on pretty much. Uh, so that being said, you know, when, when we don't do it and when there's a lack of fiber in our diet, we have what's called, you know, those tight junctions tend to sort of loosen and we have leakage of particularly bacterial endotoxin, which is what's produced in our gut. And that leaks out into our, our body and our like immune system and our vasculature. And it just wreaks havoc everywhere. We can link that, and studies have linked that to, you know, autoimmune diseases, cancer, um, mental health. So it's just so important, and and we don't even understand the breadth of the whole thing yet of of our microbiome. But the the idea of fiber in our diet it is primarily so that we can feed our gut so that it could do the things that it knows how to do already. Yes, and that's I love it. Plants, well, fiber yeah. is my favorite F word. So that's my <laughs> favorite that. topic is to talk about fiber and you explained it so well. So yeah, yeah I think that's, that's the importance of focusing on getting more plants is because all whole plant foods have fiber and there's different types of fiber. So I've had Dr. B on the show before and he, he talks about <laughs> all these different types of fiber. It's not just the two that we think of with the soluble insoluble. So that's Correct. why it's important to just get that diversity focus what you put in, but also it sounds like what you're saying is that there are certain things that maybe we want to be cautious of and to have less of. So whenever you talk to your patients, what are those things that you talk to them about maybe minimizing in their diets? So what I tell patients is like this, right? Like how food is prepared um, to stay on shelves for years at a time is that they basically take away anything that would make it degrade or become bad. So um, that's really their microbiome that we take away, right? Any bacteria, we starve them of bacteria. We throw preservatives in there that are almost like antimicrobial that will not allow them to break down and preservatives that will allow it to sort of just be sterile and sit on the shelf for however long it needs to do that for. So, you know, when you eat that, that, that becomes, you know, meaningless to to our system and sort of just continues the starvation of our gut microbiome. So when you start to remove and peel away things that are are what we need and the nutrients that we need, um, those tend to become what we call processed foods because they're shelf stable and a piece of meat that you can peel off, you know, a few slices and stays in the fridge for a month, that's devoid of bacteria. And everything has a microbiome. So we want that, those microbiomes, we want the microbiome of the cucumber, of the tomato, of the, you know, broccoli like that. Those are the things that we, we want and our gut wants. So when we devoid our foods of any sort of microbiome, it sort of just becomes 
garbage to eat. You know, it doesn't, our gut doesn't really know what to do with it, except for it's super refined. It's easy to absorb. It gets absorbed quickly in our upper GI tract and it kind of just deposits as fat or toxins. And that's, that's all it has to do. And our guts, you know, our gut microbiome is in our colon. So that's why fiber does so well. It doesn't get digested or absorbed in, in our small intestines. So yeah. Yeah, I always so tell my patients to, it yeah. has to survive all the way through. I yes. love how you explain that. That's a whole different way of looking at it that I hadn't thought of. But you know, the other day I had this thought because you know we were always talking about how sugar is bad, da da da, and you know some you know I like to think critically about these things and sometimes be the devil's advocate. But one thing I realize when you're talking about preservatives, because often we think about preservatives as like these chemicals, like man-made chemicals or whatever. But we use salt as a preservative, you know, and salt can kill a lot of things. Um, but sugar too, we use sugar as a preservative. So there's a lot of things like I'm just thinking of like like jams and jellies and things like that where they're using sugar to preserve this food item for longer. So another way to kind of think about food is these foods that have a lot of preservatives also have less bacteria, good beneficial bacteria, but then right. they can also suppress our good bacteria because some of these foods can also kill some of our good bacteria, right? Exactly, 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 exactly that. Cool, well, let's switch mm -hmm. gears because I have had a few GI doctors on here and there is a topic that has been coming up a lot in my practice lately and that is functional abdominal pain. It is very, very common here in the United States. So let's talk about what is functional abdominal pain? Functional abdominal pain is pain that is a true pain, but does not have a pathologic or mucosal disease associated with it. So, um, you know, it's a uh, diagnosis of exclusion. However, it can be made clinically and should be made clinically um, with testing and, um, you know, imaging avoided at all costs. So, what that looks like usually for me, and I, I would say this is, or what it doesn't look like, I'll start with that. Um, red signs or red flags for me are weight loss, um, waking up in the middle of the night from the pain. That's not functional for me anymore. Um, and changes in bowel habits, um, particularly um, towards, um, you know, towards the diarrhea side that, you know, bloody diarrhea, of course, but um, I tend to not see that. I wouldn't call that functional. Then we think more about IBS um, if, if there's a change in bowel habits. So, um, you know, I also try to bring attention because there's this wide, um, I would call it pandemic of, of um, gastroparesis or the, you know, this diagnosis that we've been giving out, I think, frequently. And, and you know, when you think about it, there's a lot that overlaps symptom-wise with gastroparesis and functional abdominal pain. So mm -hmm. functional abdominal pain can have nausea, can have pain, can have the feeling of fullness, can even have sometimes reflux associated with it. Um, so, you know, or early satiety. So, I mean, it, to me, I, I look at it as kid is growing, gaining weight, now we address the pain and the pain is real and it's really a dissociation between the gut brain access. So once we can establish that, hey, this is not all in your mind, it's also in your gut, um, we can start working on the gut brain access a little bit. And, and all that is, is that, you know, we have 
trillions of nerve signals that are going from our GI tract to our brain through the vagus nerve. And these signals are, you know, I can pinch you and I can pinch you know, me and, and you might be a little bit more sensitive to that pinch than I am, but that doesn't mean that your pain is any more or less real than, than whatever I experience. But so that's how our gut works too, in the same way. Sometimes responses or cramping occurs, um, when it reacts to, to certain movement of our gut digestion can also expand and, and contract and can be painful for, for kids. So, so I explain it in that way. And, and just as our, our gut sort of having any sort of chronic GI issue um, affects our mood, our mood can also affect our gut. So, uh, you know, there are many ways that we treat it and many ways to look at it. But the most important thing for me to communicate with the kids that I come in contact to is your pain is real. But the important thing to know is that it will pass. And we just have to work on ways that we're going to get you past those episodes when it happens, because a lot of it becomes Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! It's coming! It's coming! It's 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 anxiety ridden for these kids. They are in pain. So they, you know, so so working on relaxation techniques, diaphragmatic breathing is something I give the tools to my patients to do, and then you know, and sort of just keeping a diary of when this happens. And most of the times, we can find either a food trigger or a social emotional trigger. So mm-hmm. so just knowing that this is not. That having a diagnosis is the is is the first step. So knowing that we're yes, we have just the, the time. beginning. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and since you brought up the social emotional, the reason I'm wanting my audience to know more about this is because I do feel like there's been an increase. So I'm wondering on your part if that's what you've seen with yes. the pandemic, with the stress of that, children being yes. at home, maybe some changes in their lifestyle. Have you seen a spike in functional abdominal pain diagnoses? Absolutely. I've seen a spike in that. I've seen a spike in IBS. I've seen a spike in IBD. I've seen a spike in celiac. These are all things, events we know that trigger disease and not disease states. So yeah, I've seen particularly functional abdominal pain. I've seen a lot of weight loss actually that has not even been associated with a disease state. Um, this pandemic has been really stressful for, for adults and kids alike. And so, you know, being at home and not being able to come into the doctor or or not knowing back in March and April, can I? Can, we didn't have virtual appointments. We didn't really have a way to navigate our patients, even our already sick patients. So, you know, I, I think that these kids surfaced up later on and, and that that meant that they were further on in their disease or or, or disorder. And so, yeah, I've seen a ton of functional abdominal pain and I've seen a surge in IBS and IBD, and I've seen a tremendous amount of changes in weight, particularly weight loss that I didn't, hadn't seen prior to this. Um, and mm-hmm. so, you know, I have to wonder, is that, you know, me, and I, I have all these different theories, but at the end of the day, blood works normal with them, you know, stool studies are normal. And so you just have to look at, you know, what's going on here. And it's, it's just, it's a lot. It's a lot for parents and it was a lot for kids and it's showing up in their GI tract because of that gut brain connection. It's there. It, you know, it's not just that our brain sends signals to our gut, our gut also sends signals to our brain. And so it becomes a vicious cycle then, mm-hmm. you know, we, and in breaking that can be very difficult. Tell me, what is the relationship between constipation and functional abdominal pain? Because as a primary care pediatrician, I'm not a subspecialist like you, I feel like a lot of kids with abdominal pain have constipation. So that's usually my first go-to, but then obviously there's some that don't, that might 
eventually go on to have this functional abdominal pain diagnosis. But what is the relationship between them? So constipation is considered a functional GI disorder. So you could group it under that as well. Um, and, you know, once you treat the constipation, it becomes, you know, I, I when I think about constipation, um, I think left lower quadrant pain and a kid that has some sort of, you know, history, obviously, of hard stools. But um, just like you do, I also tend to jump to constipation and I treat that because it's easiest to treat. And I always tell my patients, look, I go from least invasive to most invasive. So hang in there with me. We're going to get the stool nice and soft before I prick anyone, before I do any stool sets, before we take you to the OR. And 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 most of the time, parents are willing to, to do that. And now for a very important message. Hey, veggie lover, if you are looking for free resources to guide you on your plant-based and healthy living journey, go to dryami.com forward slash free for tons of free downloadable PDFs. Hundreds of people have taken advantage of my tips to help them reduce meat and dairy consumption, navigate eating out, and build satisfying plant-based meals. Download one or download them all. And don't forget to share with friends and family. DrYami.com forward slash free. And now back to the episode. And, and so, you know, once that is clear, or even if there's a like clear to me, crystal clear, this patient is not constipated, then I start thinking about, okay, like, well, what would make this functional versus not? And, you know, more often than not, that pain is right around the belly button and it sort of just comes and goes whenever and it's not associated with anything. So, you know, or or I've seen this a lot where it's like, well, I get called from school and I don't see this anymore as much, but, you know, they keep calling me from school and telling me to pick her up or pick him up and and I come to school and I bring them home and I'm just so tired of it. I don't know what else to do. So I see a lot of that um, as well. And then the weekends, they're okay. And, and mm-hmm. that again, stress, um, and anxiety, maybe from school or social, you know, interactions, but, um, yeah, I, I think that they end up owning that diagnosis once everything else you can sort of say like, Hey, growing, gaining weight, developing appropriately, not constipated. This isn't reflux. Um, it, this becomes sort of just a functional abdominal pain picture for us. Got it. And so for the patients that are going into their primary care pediatrician, they're not yet to the point where, you know, they're wanting or asking to see a subspecialist. What would be the typical workup that you would see for one of these patients? Um, so to be honest with you, I rule out celiac, like as if it's water, like I celiac can present (laughs) in the weirdest of ways. I'm like, if you're getting a lab with me, you're getting a celiac panel. Like that's just how it's going to be. Um, so I, I, you know, that's first and foremost, if I'm going to do blood work, that's what we're going to rule out. And I always look at inflammatory markers as well. Um, but you know, when they see me, um, you know, if, if I can clearly identify that there is, um, not, um, anything, any red flags going on. So blood in the stool, weight loss, waking up in the middle of the night, um, 
joint pain rash, like nothing else really except for this vague abdominal pain. Um, I really do try to hold off until the second or third visit, which is why I always tell patients and my parents and anyone that I know, you go back and follow up because a good doctor will not start running tests unless it's completely obvious what's going on. And so I, I'm the same way. Like I want to see you again for a second time and I want to get to know you a little bit better and see how you've done. But in general, the way it would work with me is I would do blood work, stool tests, look for inflammation. I look for, you know, parasites because those can sometimes um, present weirdly any kind of infection. Obviously, we're looking for blood in the stool. We have tests for that. You know, if that all comes back negative um, and patients still having, you know, belly pain or vomiting, um, you know, I would say probably the next step is we go for an imaging, make sure there's no blockage. And, you know, last would probably be then to go ahead and take a look with endoscopy and colonoscopy. But it rarely gets there for me. I find a lot of times um, the less billable hours are the most important ones. So um, I've been spending more and more time just sort of walking through it, getting to the, you know, the underlying cause. Sometimes parents can't afford the, you know, uh, supplement, the calorie supplements that we're prescribing, you know, the pediatrician or whatever, just to jumpstart this kid's tube feeding. So no wonder they're not gaining weight. We haven't evaluated that, you know, so taking that time is, is often what allows me to be least invasive in my practice. Yes, that's great information because as you were describing before, this is a real pain that causes real distress and sometimes causes a lot of panic in families. And so often they'll go to the doctor and they want imaging right away, usually requesting a CT or an MRI or something like that immediately. So I think that it's important for parents to understand that that's not often for a lot of these things going to be the most productive route to try to diagnose and also have, like you said, minimally invasive um, to try to clinically uh, evaluate this. So like, listen, parents either love me or don't because like for me, you know, it's like I am like I'm taking you off your meds. I am like working with you to like figure out a bottom underlying issue. And sometimes, and I get it. Cause I'm, I look, I recently like went to the ER. I, I bumped my head and I was like, I want a CAT scan. That's it. Like I came for this scan. I can observe at home. You know what I mean? And then the, the ER doctor had like a long conversation with me and I was like, you're right. It's all right. I'll stay here. I'll observe. You know what I mean? So it's like, we all do it, but, but it's how we respond as providers. I think that really helps parents and they're okay. Okay with it. You know, once you sort of explain it and rationalize and I'm going to be here, I'm going to be the last doctor that you see, I promise, but we got to work together here. And most of the time, yes, it, absolutely. It no, I think it's important for parents to know just, I just want to kind of in, to put it in their heads that this is the typical procedure because it does cause so much distress and they are panicked. And the first thing yes. parents think is, there's something in there, there's something horrible and there's something horrible is happening, you know? Yes. And obviously we wanna rule that out if it gets to that point. Um, but, but you're right, especially whenever you're not familiar with a certain specialty, you know, you go into that ER doc and they're the experts yeah. in head bonks, right? They see that like yeah. 30 million times a day and they're like, yeah. no ma'am, I, I promise you're probably good. <laughs> you know, yes. let's just observe you first, you know? So yes. I think sometimes we just have to be able to put our trust in the professionals to guide yeah. us through in a stepwise fashion that might not, you know, be as quick as we want, but at least it'll be one that will lead to a more appropriate diagnosis that can be yeah. beneficial for the child. Yeah. But once we have the diagnosis, 
Talk to me a little bit more about treatment. So you talked a little bit about biofeedback and relaxation, but what, what are the different treatments that can be applied to functional abdominal pain? So um, there are a number of things that can be done. I focus primarily on nutrition and on food. Um, I think that that is the first and foremost thing I, you know, tend to remove dairy, although it's not evidence-based. It, it, I always think there's some component of IBS in there because of the way that it connects to the brain. But um, And especially if there's constipation or alternating patterns of constipation and diarrhea. Um, so I do take away dairy like very easily. And I don't do anything for more than a week. Like If it's not working for a week, we move on. Like If you're meditating for a week and it's not working, it's doing nothing, we're not adding more restrictions. Like we're moving on that wasn't the app for you or that wasn't the dairy that that did it. So like that that's the first and foremost thing. And then the next thing I do is I make sure that they're sort of removing as much processed foods as possible. Um, and, and again, focusing on plant diversity and on fiber. And I give them the chart and I, I you know, a lot of times parents will tell me or patients will tell me like, I can't eat that. Like I can't eat fiber. Like everyone else can eat. Like I know it's good, but I can't do it. And you know, you can't do it because we've starved the microbes in our gut that are capable of doing it. So it's going to have to be a slow introduction of things. So, um, you know, that dietary wise, it, it can take some time and I, and I work with them and that is my primary goal is to get them eating well. And I truly have seen a ton and ton and ton of success with patients who have abdominal pain who that that are functional that have healed well with a nice um plant-based diet or you know um more plants um optimizing the plants in their currently in their diet. So that's one. The other thing is that um we take them through diaphragmatic breathing which is very similar to meditation. Um and and another, you know, there are certain things out there on the market that are products that are um available but really only um to small patient population. You know, IB Stim is one of them. It's, you know, behind the ear, it's a it's a patch. Um, again, it's sort of just getting off its feet a little bit. So I, I haven't yet had a chance to really use it in my patients. Um, and it's quite pricey. Um, but at the end of the day, it's anything that is going to relax your vagus nerve or your autonomics is going to be helpful. So meditation, you know, going on a nice walk outside, relaxing, getting enough sleep, drinking enough water, like and when these episodes come, having the tools to sort of break that um, mental, uh, you know, sort of roller coaster of emotions that becomes sort of this like never ending cycle of worry, knowing that it will stop. Um, and and having I always I always tell patients, let, let's find an app on your phone or or a way that you want to meditate for young kids. I hold up my hand and I tell them we're going to trace our finger and we trace our thumb in. Breathe in and then out down the other side. And so it makes them do that five times. And, and you know, look, it's your hand. You have it everywhere. So that helps a lot too. Um, but, but mostly just having that discussion with patients that, like, it's okay. It will get better. It is true pain. It is. But here's how we're going to help it. And, and it, we're going to have to work. You're going to have to work with me and you're going to have to work with yourself also to just relax and to take those deep breaths because that's going to help your GI tract. And your food that you eat is going to help your GI tract as well. So brain and gut.
you have to address both. I love it. Basically lifestyle medicine for functional yeah. abdominal pain, you know? Yes. And <laughs> I, I love that you're also anti-dairy biased because I'm the same yeah. way. That's what it's like, let's just take it out and see what happens just, because I yeah. feel that it it's one of those sneaky things, isn't it? Yes. Like I feel like yes. a lot of people don't realize what it's doing to them. Like I did not realize yes. what it was doing to me until I got rid of it. And I realized I was lactose intolerant. I was like, yes. oh, that's why I was having intermittent diarrhea, even though I was constipated. Yes. <laughs> I was like constipated my yes. whole life and then yes. had this intermittent diarrhea that started after my 30s. Um, but a lot of people don't like they're not putting it together. You know, it's so no. interesting. And it's such an inflammatory, you know, um, food group for me that I'm just like, I just get rid of it. Like we weren't meant to eat it. I can, we can talk from today till tomorrow, but like, it's just for me, it, I've seen so much symptom relief from bringing patients off of dairy altogether. Like, look, we take babies who have cow's milk protein allergy, we take them off of, you know, dairy. We tell parents don't, don't drink, you know, don't consume dairy. If you're breastfeeding these, these babies, it will help them. So like, you know, even down to infancy, it, it, it it's an irritant. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yes. And 4% so. of babies are going to have that cow's milk protein intolerance. Yes. And so many breastfeeding mamas, when they get off dairy, they're like, man, I do feel a lot better though. Yes. <laughs> you know? yes. But yes. it's hard because, you know, the ice cream and the yogurt and they want it. So it's hard because we definitely still live in a dairy saturated world, but yes. it's changing. You know, the alternatives are there now. Starbucks, yes. all these places have the alternatives. So it's getting much easier to live yes. a dairy free lifestyle. So I love all of these different treatment modalities. It seems like it's very accessible and it's definitely something that all patients have the ability to start somewhere in, in yes. these options. But what is the prognosis of functional abdominal pain? How long on average do you think it takes before patients are seeing improvement of their symptoms? Can, is it something that's chronic for a lot of people? I always say that, I always tell parents, your child will not walk down the aisle with functional abdominal pain, but that, you know, can be, can be not as helpful as knowing an end date. Honestly speaking, I have not seen it last more than six months, a year. And it really just depends on how willing, you know, the parent and patient are to accept the diagnosis and then, um, and then work work towards um, some biofeedback mechanisms. Um, I think mm -hmm. this, you know, once that happens, I think it's it, it's a smooth sailing from there. You know, once they sort of master the art of of figuring out their body and knowing their triggers, um, you know, and I, I work closely with them. I have no problem. My patients have my cell phone number, text me, whatever. I, I don't mind. Um, then then it becomes you know weeks, on even under. So. I yes. think that, you know, you know, and look, it, it changes, right? Things will come up and stressful times will come up and it'll, you know, they may have a, a bout of it, you know, let's say a year down the line, you know, so, so, and that's okay because we, we know we have the tools, we understand. And if we don't, then we reevaluate what's going on. Well, how, what are we eating? What, you know, it's like anything, it's an ebb and flow and, and mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah, I'm just the that. acceptance that, okay, this is my diagnosis. I yeah. do have some things that I can do for it. It's not going to last forever. Probably helps a lot of kids feel better. You know that, yes. okay, there's something I can do for this and it's not going to last forever. And yes. then they have to tune into their bodies and learn their bodies. And now for a very important message. Hey mama, 
If you are feeling frustrated about mealtime battles, worried that your child isn't eating enough or eating enough vegetables, afraid that your child is going to get some awful deficiency or disease because of the lack of diversity in their diet, I wrote a book that might be for you. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Did you know that most children are born with the innate ability to eat the appropriate amount of food to satisfy their hunger and support appropriate growth? Despite this, parents are still anxious and confused about how much and what to feed their children. In addition, many children are labeled as picky eaters or develop behaviors such as hiding and sneaking food. There's also a growing epidemic of dieting behaviors and eating disorders beginning at alarmingly young ages. In my book, you'll learn the five pillars of healthy eating, how to apply intuitive eating through all the stages of development, lifestyle habits that support healthy eating and body image, troubleshooting and problem solving for picky eaters, overeating and dieting behaviors, how to create and foster a healthy body image in your children, how exploring your own body image and relationship with food will help raise an intuitive eater, and what foods to offer your child at different stages of development. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy, available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Are you ready for a fresh approach to feeding your child? For more information, visit dryami.com forward slash book. And now back to the episode. And they can improve over time. Yeah, I say also like to parents, look, like this is your sixth or seventh, you know, GI doctor that you're seeing. And again, I will be the last one, but we have to sort of remove what we've learned and remove our biases um, because otherwise they become somewhat of like a psycho bezoar, meaning like just, you know, an inability, what we call a bezoar is a, um, you know, non-food lump or mass in our stomach. They often come from like people, you know, who will eat hair or or certain things that are not really edible. And then it kind of just sits in our stomach and blocks it. And so I always, you know, I try to explain to parents, like we have to remove that sort of like psychologic bezoar from our, from our belief system. And, and then let's move into this together because what you heard from someone else may not be where I'm going with this. So, mm-hmm. so sometimes it's hard. Yeah. Accepting mm-hmm. it is really hard. Yes. Oh, I love that. That's so great. You earlier talked about some signs and symptoms. I want to review those really quick that they should probably get more studies or some red flag symptoms, right? So you said weight loss, pain, waking them up in the middle of the night. That's always one for pediatricians. Any kind of pain in the middle of the night, we're like, wait a second, what? Um, (laughs) And then change in bowel habits. Anything else there that are red flags? you know, blood in the stool. Um, I would say any of this um, that's associated with um, joint pains or kids not growing even height-wise, um, any sort of mouth sores are, you know, a, a red flag for me. Um, visual problems in the face of, you know, GI symptoms also sort of an issue. And then, you know, anyone that has GI symptoms that has like a close relative or a family history of like inflammatory bowel disease, celiac, like 
I want to see them sooner than I'd want to see like a regular, you know, kid with no other family history. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, those are the mm-hmm. main ones. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Well, Dr. Winderman, what do you wish more parents knew? <sighs> I wish more parents knew that, you know, um, school-aged children um, are constipated because they're withholding. So as much as I am diet based for those kids, I we have to treat them with Miralax. And I'm the last mm-hmm. one who wants to do that. But the sooner we do that and we undo that uh, withholding behavior, the better we'll be and the less we'll have to use the Miralax. So, so sometimes I, I just wish parents would understand that, you know, it's every six-year-old or five-year-old, I see 60 you know, percent of this in my clinic all day long, school age kids, you know, or right near, you know, potty training. So it's nothing you're doing. You're feeding all the good fiber. I'm sure you're doing an excellent job. It's behavior. (laughs) Don't consider Mm -hmm. it a fail. And there are some expert withholders out there. Yeah, they're good at it. (laughs) I have to talk to parents about how, how expert their child is in the withholding department. And yes. that's, I usually say the same thing. Sometimes we just got to use Miralax to blast it out, keep things soft, yeah. help them get that stool retraining done, you know, yes. or their bowel retraining. And um, then we can get on the right path. I love that. That is a great thing. What personal habit are you most proud of and why? Exercising. I decided that that was it. This year is a pandemic and I'm just going to make it 30 minutes a day. And I'm not going to say I don't have time because I'm so focused on food. And yes, it is the number one determinant of our gut health. But there are other things that affect our microbiome that I was neglecting. So Mm -hmm. I've done a good job of that. And now I'm going to have to hold myself accountable because I've just announced that. (laughs) Yes. So what's your favorite form of exercise? What are the typical things you like to do? I really enjoy um, like strength training. I run three times a week. Also, Um, I like at home exercise, like videos, like um, I do a lot of different kinds of programs. The Nike training app is free. I always tell my patients about it. And it's like, you know, it's 30 minutes or 15 minute like little exercises. And it has a ton of them. And I just I think it's a great app. So I always look for like the free apps because like then I could tell my patients about them. And then we could do them together. And I could like check on theirs and they could check on mine. And, you know, I'm really into holding everyone accountable. (laughs) It's great. So before you made a deliberate choice to start this habit of exercising every day, no matter what. Did you find it hard to get exercise in? Yes. So it was always for me, it was like, um, I have to do it and I will do it three times a week. Um, but I, I can't commit to like every single day. Like, so three times a week I would do it, but it always ended up being like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, because like the whole week I'd be like, I just can't, I have to do this. I have to do that. And so I just learned that like, no, like I have to take 30 minutes and it is what it is and it can be wherever it is in the day, but it will be in that day. So yeah, I had a hard time putting that first. And until I realized It's like eating, like it's, you have to do it. That's it. Nobody likes yep. it. I don't just think. just have to get started. <laughs> yes. And I feel like exercise is one of those things too, that most of the time you're not going to be like, oh, like, yay, let's exercise. But yeah. you never, After. almost never regret it, right? Afterwards, you're like, oh, yes. I'm so glad I did that. <laughs> so Yes, yes. And there's so many cool things on the market now that I'd love to try. Like everyone's into the Peloton and the mirror. I'm like, 
you fancy, I'm going to definitely try that. Like when I like get, <laughs> get a few well, more I was going to mention the Peloton. So I'm glad you mentioned it before me. Cause I always feel like I am like an aggressive Peloton salesman. I, but Are I love you? it. I mean, I love it. Okay. Seriously. Like I don't but, cycle. You, know, and you so can also, the me- Peloton app is right now is free for 90 days too. So you could at least try it <laughs> and then just, you know, get on a spin bike, but it also has like outdoors and all that kind of stuff. And so there's all different, they even have Pilates now and dance and all kinds of things. So it's, it's really fun. You know, there's so many different ways to move our bodies, but the most important thing is for each person to find what they enjoy, what makes them feel good and to connect to that feeling of feeling good during and after, you know, and then that'll just propel you forward in your habits. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So that feeling, knowing, knowing what that feeling's like after and knowing what I'm missing if I don't is just a big driver. <laughs> awesome. Oh, I love it. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. I think that a lot of people think that doctors are just like perfect and that we just have yeah. all habits <laughs> down perfectly. But that's why I ask these questions because it gives us insight into how we're all human and we all have areas that we want to improve and then there's a process for yeah. it, you know? Yeah, 100%. Well, Dr. Winderman, this has been so great. You've given us so much valuable information. I am so glad that I connected with you. So please tell us how my listeners can connect with you. Where can they find you? And tell us about all your videos. <laughs> so um, they can find me on um, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter. Um, it's kids gastro doc. So it just how it sounds kids, K I D S gastro G A S T R O doc D O C. Um, and I suddenly, um, somehow became the dancing poop doctor on TikTok, and I, I'm not sure how it all happened, but I think the pandemic had me just very bored at some point and I started learning these dances and then I said, well, what am I doing if I'm just, dancing? I can't, I got to provide value. So I started doing like these little Charlie dances with like constipation information in them. <laughs> and so it's, it's become my thing. And I, I enjoy it. I think it's a fun way to just, you know, give over information. So I look forward to hearing one of my patients tell me that they saw it or they learned about it. They were excited to sit on the toilet because of it. So <laughs> that's super cute. Doing our so best. <laughs> have you always been a dancer and like dancing? Or is this new for you? No, so I grew up as a as a competitive dancer up until high school and then where I cool. stopped and my mother to the yeah, my mother keeps saying she's like, Well, I'm so glad those dance lessons paid off. <laughs> so <laughs> I no, finally right. You videos. never knew that yeah. it was gonna take you to TikTok stardom, but there was a no. purpose. <laughs> <laughs> it's so silly so too. Fun. It's it's yeah, yeah. I always my daughter's well, like, You have this you're the silliest kind of doctor. I'm like, I know, right? <laughs> You know what? But you have permission because you're a pediatrician. I mean, as pediatricians, we have permission to be as silly as we want. And that's what I love love about being a pediatrician. But what I love the most about the videos is your smile because it just radiates out. You look so happy. And whenever I see one of your videos, I can't help but just smile. So thank you for making learning information fun because I think it is important for parents to have a credible place to get information, but why not make it fun? Why does it have to be stale and boring and blah, you know? So thank you for for being brave and doing something silly. 
I couldn't align with like the picture like of myself like in a hallway or like the layout of like an art museum as my I just couldn't I was like I have nothing to say like I did <laughs> I don't know like, you forged your own I have nothing path. profound to tell you yes yes, yes. <laughs> you you know you paved the way for other people who at their heart want to be silly as well so <laughs> great all right so the last task I have for you is to leave us with one call to action for the week. So what is one thing that we can do this week to improve our lives? I always say try to try one new plant a week, Um, you know, and, and go with your kids if you have them, you know, and have them pick out one. And if it's gross, then it's gross. And you learn how to use it in a different way. But one step at a time. I never, you know, I, I try not to do too many things at once as a doctor and as, as a patient, you know, I, I'm, I just one thing at a time and we'll get their baby steps. So try one new plant this week. I love it. Try one new plant. And then every week you have a new opportunity to try another new plant. Well, this exactly. has been so great. Dr. Rebecca Winderman, thank you so much Bye. for being a guest on Veggie Doctor Radio. Thank you for all that you do for your patients and for your world. I appreciate you so much. And I hope that you have a very plantastic day. You too. Thank you, Dr. Yami. <laughs> Hey, veggie lover, I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done.